welcome to the Neutral Ground Podcast. This is the last episode of our three-part series where we examine what I believe are the three defining traits of neo-modernism thus far. If you haven't seen the previous two episodes, take some time to listen to those as well, because in a lot of ways, all of these kind of work together. Our final defining trait of neo-modernism is the importance of creating sacred space. In my opinion, this is likely the trait that is most responsible for the contentious cultural climate. Contentious cultural climate, well, that's quite the alliteration there. We currently feel or experience today. And it's something that we have been craving for quite some time. So we'll talk about the positives and the negatives of our yearning for sacred space in this episode. Okay, so let me set the stage for this discussion with a story about a time that I messed up as a husband to my wonderful wife. My wife absolutely loves the movie Sense and Sensibility from 1995. It's, of course, based on the Jane Austen novel of the same name. My wife will put that movie on in the background sometimes when she, you know, just has some kind of menial task to do. Something that is repetitive and doesn't really require tremendous consciousness. But she likes hearing the movie in the background. One of the stars of the film is none other than the great, late Alan Rickman. You know, Hans from Die Hard, for those of you who are a little bit older. Professor Snape from Harry Potter, for those of you who might be a a little less older. Well, I had a brilliant idea. I decided that I was going to expand, dare I say, amplify her enjoyment of the film by giving it a, let's call it postmodern, reinterpretation. I loaded the movie in my editing software, and in every point of the film that Alan Rickman spoke as the character Colonel Brandon, I inserted a line that Rickman spoke from the movie Die Hard. So here's Alan Rickman in this Jane Austen film, and instead of saying some beautifully composed Austinian dialogue, he says things like, I must have missed 60 minutes. I could talk about men's fashion all day. And of course, a yippee Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you probably already know why this is a postmodern interpretation. I took the dominant narrative and infused a kind of skepticism in order to disrupt that dominant narrative and highlight something else. Additionally, I mocked the sanctity of that original narrative and opened it up for ridicule. Now, some of you, at least, I hope, are probably thinking, okay, that's actually pretty pretty funny, honestly. Well, as much as my ego loves to hear that, and by all means, go to the neutralgroundpodcast.com and leave me an audio message to let me know that it's pretty funny. As much as that inflates my ego, the only person that I wanted to make laugh was my amazing wife. And I failed miserably. To her credit, she didn't say anything mean or yell at me. 
She just watched it with this kind of disinterested disappointment. It only took me about 20 minutes of the movie to realize what I had done. You see, my wife created a kind of sacred space for herself with that movie. There's something about it that almost, you could say, creates like a sandbox from which she can just enjoy an hour and a half without being worried about anything outside of that space. I actually have movies that create that kind of space as well. I love watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy at least once a year, if I can, because it gives me hope. It gives me strength. And it prompts me to reevaluate suffering, heroism, and humanity. That's a kind of sacred space for me as well. Okay, now we need to start getting deeper and more particular about this. Let's be clear. Neither myself nor my wife believe that these films, Sense and Sensibility and The Lord of the Rings, are globally sacred spaces. They're personal ones. They aren't yours. However, when we meet other people who love those movies, we can open them up to others in order to expand the sacredness of those spaces. And then when the conversation is over, we can close them up again and keep them for ourselves. Now you might be thinking, look, it was a joke. We need to be able to joke about everything. Well, guess what? That need to be able to joke about everything, that's likely your sacred space. You want to make sure that every aspect of human existence remains open to jokes. And that's fine if that's your sacred space, right? That's your way of trying to carve out something that you think is important. Because if it wasn't your sacred space, you genuinely wouldn't care if some things are not open to ridicule and other things are. Now, this example is is meant to just serve as an easy and hopefully somewhat humorous way into what is a very important discussion for us. In that story I told, I'm I'm just kind of talking about movies there, but expand the categories to larger concepts like identity, religion, politics, and human experience, and you can start to see how we've worked our way into this contentious atmosphere that I think we all feel. So let's start to organize these ideas a little bit more. Now, very quickly, because we've talked ad nauseum about postmodernism, but the need for some sense of sacred space does come out of the complete breakdown and rejection of sacred space and grand narratives that emerges in postmodernism. But especially toward the the end of postmodernism in the 1990s and early to mid-2000s, when that rubber band of historical movements snaps, you're often left with so much potential energy turned kinetic that we have kind of overcorrections. Thus, in neo-modernism, we have grown tired 
of the lack of sacred space and have created intensely personal sacred spaces. Ones that we are not just willing to defend, but that we feel a kind of calling to defend. Now, you might be thinking there's kind of a a problem here. I'm talking about the creation of individual sacred spaces. And much of the arguing and anger that we see today seems to be group-oriented. And I would argue that you have to go deeper. This is not about group identity. It's about the sculpting of individual identity within a group. That's not the same thing. Think about how many times you hear someone say, well, that person doesn't represent my interpretation of, and insert whatever group of individuals you're talking about or, or idea. In a lot of ways, that person is telling the truth. As human beings, we are social, right? We're a social species. We are, with a few exceptions, comfortable when we are with others. Building individual sacred spaces is actually quite a frightening endeavor because you have to believe in something. You have to take a stand on the premise that this idea, person, or thing is worth me having to defend the sacredness of it. And that is a difficult thing to do when you already know that the majority of humans outside of yourself will not agree that what you've identified as sacred is worthy of defense. It's for this reason that in neo-modernism, there will always be the temptation to slide yourself into a group of people who are at the very least closely aligned with your sacred space, because now you have a much bigger force that can help you defend at least parts of your sacred space. But, and herein lies the rub, the problem with the extreme groups of individuals, and yes, I use this term, they are groups of individuals. The problem is that you sacrifice the uniqueness of your sacred space for protection. Not only do you sacrifice parts of your unique sacred space when you join extreme groups, you become responsible to the group think. In a kind of bastardization of Rousseau's general will concept, even extreme groups start to settle on broad ideas that they can share, that they can use as shields from which they can defend the entire group. You become responsible for whatever that group decides it's going to push forward as its settled general will. And that can be dangerous and destructive to the sacred space that you need to move through neo-modernism with some sense of sanity. It's the reason why I'm trying to pull people out of the extremes and implore people to construct their own personal sacred space. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't share yourself in groups and be a part of humanity. Not at all. In fact, I would argue we need to be even more involved with humanity, with each other. We need to get back to the idea that we all have larger concepts that connect us. Love, suffering, fear, joy, the need for purpose, 
these larger ideals are the general will of the human species. Okay, so the creation of individual sacred spaces might seem like a negative thing here, but it isn't. I would argue that each and every one of us needs to have some place, something that we can attach ourselves to that allows us to seriously reflect on who we are and who we want to be. For individuals who subscribe to some form of religion, you have sacred space built into the infrastructure of religion itself. You can use that as your sacred space then, as a way of giving you the time and focus that we need to rebalance our humanity. If you're not religious, that still doesn't preclude you from needing something that is sacred. I've mentioned this before. But it isn't by coincidence that all of a sudden everyone is interested in meditation, as if meditation and prayer are concepts that we just now invented. No, they've been around for thousands of years. Meditation is quite literally you attempting to carve out sacred space for yourself so that you can then transcend the body, the physical form. It's a serious place, not one that is open to ridicule and mockery. We want to come out of meditation and prayer better people, not just for ourselves, but for those we love most. It's important that we take some time here to remember that neo-modernism is a kind of updated version of modernism. And remember, the overarching trait of modernism is redefinition, reconsideration. That same trait runs through neo-modernism as well. We're desperately trying to nail down specific definitions of what it means to be human. And in doing so, we are butting heads with each other when they don't agree with us. Nonetheless, the pull to try and redefine what it means to be human is gravitational. What I mean is that it's a very real pull that we're feeling right now. Let's take a look at some neo-modern literature and poetry and break down how it speaks to this idea of building sacred space and the troubles that come with it. Now, for the sake of copyrights and respecting the author's right to sell and publish the work, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm only going to look at two, maybe three parts, and and encourage all of you to read the rest on your own, and possibly even purchase the author's book of poems. The author's name here, the poet's name, is Ocean Vung. That's V-U-O-N-G. The title of the poem we're looking at is Someday I'll Love Ocean Vung. And it can be found and purchased as part of a collection of poems entitled Night Sky with Exit Wounds. It was published in 2016, although the specific poem we're looking at was first published, I believe, in 2015. Let's just look at the first nine lines of the poem here. Ocean, don't be afraid. The end of the road is so far ahead, it is already behind us. Don't worry. Your father is only your father until one of you forgets. Like how the spine won't remember its wings, no matter how many times our knees kiss the pavement. Ocean, 
Are you listening? Okay, let's pause for a minute and break this down. First, you have the direct reference to one's self. We do this sometimes in our own heads, right? As a way of trying to force consciousness of the moment. We are prepping ourselves for something that we believe is important. The poet writes, don't be afraid. In a world of ever-increasing levels of anxiety, worries that range from collective concerns of catastrophic extinction-level events to individual pessimistic attitudes that any individual on Earth, anyone, truly cares about us, including ourselves. Vung comes out of the gate with this poem, hitting us on the neo-modern levels of darkness, loneliness, and the struggle to try and focus enough to create some sense of sacred space. And that is what the speaker of the poem is trying to do, carve out the mindset that it's necessary to build sacred space. Let's skip to another section here. Ocean. Ocean, get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world. Now, I make no bones about the fact that my love of literature resides mostly in the pre-World War I era. However, these five lines are magnificent. And here's why I think so. You have the speaker once again addressing the consciousness. In fact, we have not one but two references to the name Ocean. Ocean. What the author is kind of about to say to the self here, right, is very important. However, the repetition of the name indicates not simply that what to come is important, but it's also an indication of just how difficult it is today to focus ourselves We've lost so much ability to focus, to reflect, that we almost need to physically shake ourselves from the dreamlike state that is created by our technologies and how we use our technologies today, how they dictate our time and existence. What does the speaker say? Get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. You know, one of the biggest problems that we face today is the mindset that there is no more important moment in history than right now. How we're feeling in the present moment is the only truth that exists. Think about how many arguments are created today, not because of any genuine feelings of anger, but rather because we feel angry in the moment. But that anger is not really representative of how we feel 95% of the time. This happens in marriage, doesn't it? (laughs) You feel frustrated in a moment about something that you think is suddenly universal. We say something like, you always... But it's not actually true. They don't always. Nonetheless, in that present moment, We actually feel like it is always. In that moment, there is no truer statement than you always. What we need to do is not give in to that present transient truth. 
We need to walk away and allow our minds enough time to think about that truth, reflect upon it, and if it's still there in the coming days, then address it. However, I would say about 99% of the time, our minds end up telling us, it's not true. Move on. The poem attempts to establish this idea by saying, the most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. It's challenging us to see the road ahead of us, to see the beauty that is there, to not get lost in the present. There is hope. There is beauty There is joy in front of us. You just have to recognize it. Finally, the author writes, Remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world. This is profoundly beautiful in its despair. Loneliness, as bad as it is, is still a feeling. It's an acknowledgement that you are here. You exist. Loneliness is universal. It's something that we share from the first human beings to the very last. And there is something beautiful and even sad universal human traits because you realize that others have come before you. It's not just your loneliness. It's our loneliness. Now, Don't misunderstand me here. Do not fall in love with loneliness. And that's a very real potential danger. You romanticize your loneliness to the point that you become a misanthrope. Someone who believes that you thrive on solitude. You're kidding yourself. I'm not saying that you don't experience comfort in solitude or that we don't all need solitude sometimes. What I'm saying is that you can be even more You can be an even greater form of yourself if you embrace being a part of humanity, of the collective purpose that is built into us as a species. And if you want to embrace humanity, but you just can't do it, that something inside of you is preventing you, do not be afraid of seeking professional help. There is not a damn thing wrong with that. It's no different than the archetypal hero from thousands of years ago accepting the wisdom and experience of the wise old man figure in literature. What we see in this beautiful poem by Vung is the yearning to carve out something sacred for the self within the self and how so many worldly things prevent us from doing so, how we require motivation and serious dialogue with the self to move forward in life. We also see that yearning to be a part of a group. But what the poet does that is so brilliant is to highlight the need to retain the self, to retain one's agency. When we bring all these ideas to our neutral ground, we come away with a complex vision of sacred space in neo-modernism. On one hand, sacred space allows us to genuinely reflect on our lives, on who we want to be. It is absolutely necessary for personal growth and for reassurance in our personal narrative. On the other hand, it creates an intense need to defend our space, 
And human beings are very strategic when it comes to defense. We will create strategic alliances with others in order to defend our sacred spaces. And at times, these alliances can lead us to a path of our own destruction. We must be careful about this. That pretty much closes out this mini-series on the three most important traits of neo-modernism. Here's what I hope you do with this information. Take all three traits, the need for narrative reassurance, the need to transcend the body, and the need for sacred space, and just think on them for a bit. Let them just sit in your mind. Resist the urge to react. Resist the urge to either wholly accept or wholly dismiss them. Instead, bring them out into the world and see how these ideas manifest themselves both intrinsically from within you and extrinsically from outside of yourself, but just as a passive observer at first. Just see them in the world. And I also challenge you to do the following. The next time you open up a YouTube video or Twitter or anything that involves human interaction, the next time you read, hear, or experience something that you perceive to be a negative interaction with someone else, I want you to stop yourself from reacting to it and instead ask yourself if the other person is speaking to one of the three main traits that we just talked about over the course of these last three episodes. It's likely that you can pinpoint the person looking for narrative reassurance, trying to transcend the body, or looking to defend their personal sacred space. Now, once you've identified what you think it is, or maybe it's a combination, I want you to just try something different. Try to engage them on the level of that particular neo-modern trait. Ask them questions. Not trying to change their mind, but ask them questions about how they're feeling. Let them talk about that trait. And really listen to what they have to say. When it's over, try to encourage them as best as you can. I promise you that the more you practice this, the more you will find that people are in a desperate place for genuine human connectivity. And they don't want to be in an antagonistic place. Now, I'm not saying you're going to succeed. I'm not even saying it's going to go well. But make no mistake, you will have, at the very least, tried to have done something good and in the name of good. And you know, I'm going to give you one more challenge here. The next time you have a moment to yourself of some kind of silence, 
try to develop your list of what a good person does or is or, or says. Don't use your personal traits to guide you. Use the collective wisdom that we've accumulated through thousands of years of humanity. Then choose one trait from your list that you believe you can do a better job with and go out and find a time and place where you can practice being better at that trait. And just do it. It might feel awkward at first, but you will get used to it, and it will become a part of your daily way of life, so that you won't even have to think about it anymore. Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do here, is create a better way of being, not just for ourselves, but for others. Now, I'm going to make a quick pitch here. If you enjoyed this series and the podcast so far, please support my endeavor to create a community of thinkers who are not interested in the divisiveness of the extreme voices. I'm genuinely looking to grow this into something special and really need your help. Please go to my website at theneutralgroundpodcast.com and read the section that talks about how to support the podcast. If you can even do just one, of those items listed, I will be truly grateful. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on the neutral ground and have a great day.